It'll make you think, I hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's getting around, after all this we've read so far, to letting them know how comfortable he is with them now because they responded so very well to his first letter. So verses 3 and 4 say this, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. I, I may have mentioned it last week, but I'd like to emphasize just a bit more now. From the first six chapters of this book and even up to chapter 7, Paul has been always using the plural, we, 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 our. But now he's switching to a more personal first-person singular pronoun, I speak, I have said, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. He's getting personal, and he's personal in a very happy and positive way. He's happy. He says he has boldness of speech, great boldness of speech toward them. Why can he, why can he have great? Because he didn't have to speak carefully. He had liberty. He was free with them. And he says, great is my glorying of you. He's able to take the people in Corinth because of how they responded to his first letter, and he can brag, if you will, he can speak to others about the fine example of the believers in Corinth. And then he says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. He says, I know there's tough times. And the phrase in the Greek language here in 7.4, I am filled with comfort, there is a the, in a definite article in front of the word comfort. He says more literally, I am filled with the comfort. The comfort that he had from them, from the, the news of them that Titus had brought to him. I've, I'm just filled with this comfort I've gotten from you. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. There are some words that don't come across as strong in the English language as they are in Greek. The two words in English, exceeding joyful, is one big old word in, in the New Testament that means superabound. It, it's, it's a powerful language. I superabound with the joy. I am exceedingly joyful. I superabound with joy even though in all our tribulation. Now, he's going to go on in the next few verses to talk a little bit about the tough stuff he's facing, the tribulation, and just to, to help them to know what he's, what he's coming from and where he's coming through. Verses 5 and 6, when we were come into Macedonia, I need to remind you of the map. I'm not going to put a map in front of you on the, on the screen, but I'm going to draw a picture in your head. You know the general shape of the Mediterranean Sea is a long body of water running east and west, wider than it is tall, and about halfway across it, Italy sticks down from the top, and a little bit beyond Italy, sticking down from the north side of the Mediterranean coast, is the peninsula we just generally would call Greece. It has other things on it north of Greece, but Greece, the Grecian peninsula, and Above Greece and going on to the east is Macedonia. 
sticking out toward Greece from the east is what we call today Asia Minor or Turkey. And Paul had come from his many missionary work in Asia Minor and sailed up to Macedonia when he went first to Philippi on his second missionary journey. So now he's talking about coming into Macedonia. He's reporting that he went back there again from the time he had been in Corinth. So he's explaining to the people down, Corinth is in the southern end of Greece, to the people down there that he's up here in Macedonia. And he said, when we were coming to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Out without, there's fightings. Within were fears. He said, there was just a, a lot going on. No rest. Nevertheless. And then he teaches them a name of God that I think we should remember often. God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. He says, here I am in Macedonia. They'd kept me in jail there before in Philippi. And, and I'm facing troubles outside fightings, inside fears. But God comforted us when Titus came. His friend, his young associate Titus, had gone down to Corinth and came back from Corinth after Paul's first letter with a report to Paul about how the Corinthians were doing. God that comforteth those that are cast down. What a good name. <clears throat> what a nice way to refer to God. I'd like to look back at several verses about the way God comforts. God that comforts those that are cast down. Back in chapter 1, we did this many weeks ago, verses 3 and 4, he began this letter with, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You say, that's pretty nice. It is pretty nice. I'm going to do something I don't usually do in the, in the room here, but we'll do it. Put the dictionary down there, switch to the version that has the numbers on it. These are the Strong's Concordance numbers for the Strong's Concordance Dictionary. And the God of all comfort, you click on that and wait for it. <laughs> there it is. You see a Greek word, but bless us, they spell it in English letters too, and it, it's paraklesis. Paraklesis, you say, what does that mean? Well, it's the same root word as Jesus used when he referred to the Holy Spirit coming. He said, I will send you another comforter. That's paraklesis. It's another, uh, another somebody called alongside to help. This is a... Uh, a different form of it, but it's the same para kaleo. Kaleo is a verb that means to call. Para is alongside. If you have to get to the courtroom and stand in front of the judge, you want to call alongside you somebody that can speak for you in that setting. That's what a paraclesis is, a, an attorney, a comforter. And it's a word often translated in the, the New Testament with some reference to exhortation, and we think exhortation, man, that's like fussing with somebody, but it's not. 
It means encouraging. It means encouraging. I'm trying to push this little button here with a fat mouse, and I can't do it. There I go. Got it. So going back just to regular King James text, I can do this. The God of all comfort, and there's the verb form of the same word. He comforts us. We can be able to comfort them that are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. If you know somebody that's going through some hard times, and they say, why is God letting me go through this? Isn't this a good, at least partial answer? It doesn't always mean that they've sinned, that God's making them go through chastening. That doesn't perhaps even often mean that. Think about the man Job. Did he do something wrong that he got what he was put through for so many chapters there in his book? He didn't do anything wrong. He was doing so well that God basically made a wager with Satan. He said, Job's a good guy. What are you going to do about that? And he said, well, let me, let me mess with him, and he'll curse you. And God said, well, just don't kill him. And so Job went through it for 38 chapters of bad advice from bad friends. But at the end, God comforted him. He didn't sin to deserve that. And not everybody that you know that's going through trouble is getting it from God. Some do. But this says God, the God of all comfort, comforts us in our tribulation for this purpose, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort where we ourselves are comforted of God. There's hardly anything better than somebody who can sincerely say to a person who's troubled, I know how you feel. And then doesn't try to tell them they don't feel bad, just, 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 just to be there with them. I used to make fun of myself by going to hospitals where ladies were having babies and tell them that. I'd say, I know how you feel. And they'd look at me sideways and say, what are you talking about, you dummy? I take you over to another passage about the comfort of God. This is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. This is page 759, if you happen to be using a Schofield Reference Bible. In Isaiah, God speaking says this. He says, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die? And of the Son of Man, which shall be made as grass. And you forget the Lord thy Maker, that stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth? I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Isn't that good? And in the New Testament, in John chapter 14, Jesus trying to comfort his apostles, his disciples, who'd been with him for nearly three years, says this in verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him, it doesn't see him, doesn't know him. You know him, he dwells with you. He shall be in you. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Just like he had been with them, so the Holy Spirit is not just with us, but actually after the day of Pentecost is in every believer. Another, another passage that touches on the comfort that God gives to his people when they're in trouble, like Paul was. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 
talks about the scriptures. Page 1208, if you need the page number in your Schofield. Romans 15, verse 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime. The Jewish Bible, the Bible from Genesis through Malachi, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We're supposed to use this book. It's all for us. It's not all to us. We're not told, now get circumcised, keep the Sabbath. We're not put under the law of Moses by any means. But it is for us that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. We look at how God dealt with those men and women in the past and could be encouraged by how he will faithfully deal with us. Verse 5 says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. I wonder if this works. It does. Look at that. The God of patience and consolation. Consolation is that same word, paraklesis, that we looked at where it was translated comfort before. The God of comfort, the God of consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. I think that's just nice. All right. We go across the page in the notes to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1272, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation, that same word again, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, the same word again, and establish you in every good word and work. That's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians and I think he prayed for all of his churches, and that would include us. God, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. We've got the everlasting life, but he's going to comfort our hearts and establish us even now in this lifetime. I just think that's good. In 2 Corinthians, back where we were, but in chapter 2, we looked at chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We find a little bit more about this coming of Titus that he refers to here. Down in verse 13, he says, well, we've got to get a picture here. He says, when I came to Troas, that's Paul traveling out to the very northwest end of what we call Asia Minor, there, Turkey today. When I came to Troas, it's not far from where the ancient city of Troy was that the Greeks destroyed, according to Homer's Iliad. But Troas, he says, that's where I came to, and I came to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. I had to keep there preaching. He says, still, even though I got work to do and the doors open to the gospel, I had no rest in my spirit. He said, oh, I was uncomfortable. I, I had a hole in my, my comfort because I found not Titus my brother. So even though I was preaching the gospel in Troas, I left and went from there up to Macedonia. And he says, that's where I'm writing to you now. 
and, and Titus came to us. He wasn't there when I was in Troas, but he came up, <coughs> excuse me, I went up to Macedonia, and he's looking for Titus, and Titus is going to be a comfort to him as he reports back about the way it is in Corinth since Paul wrote his first letter. Going back to chapter 7 and running ahead of ourselves a little bit, down to verse 13, Therefore we were exceeding, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. And we go on here. I have not, if I have boasted anything of him, I'm sorry, to him of you, I told Titus about how you were, and I was building you up. I'm not ashamed, as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is the more abundant toward you, whilst he remembered the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. He, Titus came from Paul to Corinth, and they responded well. Verse 16, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you, in all things. Now we're going to hit more on Titus in chapter 8. We're not quite there yet. I'm not going to run ahead. But Titus was one who communicated to Paul about the spiritual situation in Corinth after they had received his first letter and how, how well they responded to it. I would like to go to chapter 12. I'm not going to go to chapter 8 yet because we'll get there in its turn. But chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians page 1239, in verse 17, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and answering what might have been objections. He said, did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? He says, I sent you Titus, and I sent another brother, verse 18, I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think you that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ. We do all things dearly beloved for your edifying. He says, just the way I was there working with my own hands, not to be chargeable to you, but to make the gospel of Christ without charge. That's the way Titus and the other brother came to you to be clear of any kind of charge for the gospel of Christ. Now we run back to where we were supposed to be here in chapter 7. And verse 7, the very next verse, he says in verse 6, we're comforted by the coming of Titus. And verse 7, not by his coming also, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire your earnest desire and your, your mourning, your fervent mind to, toward me so that I rejoice the, mo the more. We get a little clarity here about how Titus reported to Paul what the Corinthians were like. He told us your earnest desire. Not just, I sort of wish I could do better so Paul would be happy with me. No, your earnest desire. He was pressed to do the Corinthians were pressed to do well 
by Paul to respond correctly to his letter. Your mourning. Now, why was mourning called for? Well, I'm, I'm skipping ahead of my notes. The, the comfort, all of that comes from parakaleo or paraklesis. But to go on, his earnest desire, er, intensely to yearn and long for. But mourning, that means they're down. They're in grief. Why did the Corinthians mourn? And why was Paul comforted that they were mourning? Because he'd had to correct grievous sins that they were involved in. They were involved in accepting as acceptable conduct in their church assembly a man that had sexual relations with his father's wife. And Paul said, that's wrong. You need to get him that is polluting your assembly. Get him out. Get him out. And they responded well. They responded so well that Paul in this letter is going to say, now forgive him. It's enough. It's enough. Forgive him. But they were really affected. They're mourning. It's a strong word. And then he says, your fervent mind toward me. Fervent is a word that refers to being hot, like boiling, on fire. You're, it is the word zealous, like zeal, zealous. Your fervent mind toward me. He, Titus told us about how much you desire, how, how deep was your mourning, and how hot is your desire to please me, your fervent mind toward me. And so I rejoiced the more. Paul is able to rejoice the more. And then we get to verses 8 and 9, which we have to talk about because the wording of it gets confusing for some people, and we'll just do it. He says, though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, in contrast to I made you sorry. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Now I hope you have the notes in front of you. If you don't, I wish you would. I made you sorry with a letter. That is a reference to his first letter we call 1 Corinthians. I made you sorry with a letter. They got sorry when they got it in a good way. And then he says, I do not repent, though I did repent. These two words in this verse, repent, repent, are translating a different New Testament Greek word than what is usually translated repent. These are not the word metaneo. These are neither one of them metaneo, which means a change of mind. This is the word metamelomai. It's got that another word on the front of it, meta, but melomai does not just refer to the mind. It's a word here, metamelomine, that means to regret. This particular word repent does mean repent, regret. But most of the time in the New Testament, when it's translated repent, it's the other word, metanoia, that does not have anything to do with being sorry. So very literally, Paul here is saying, though I made you sorry, it's a different word, sorry, with a letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I don't regret it, but I did regret it. Why? Because I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry. He says, I regret that I had to make you sorry. I'm sorry I had to make you sorry. But I'm not sorry that I did it because it was, it was worth it. Now he says, I rejoice, in contrast to all that being sorry and regretful up in the, first, the verse 8. 
Not that you were made sorry. Why? I'm not rejoicing that you made, were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. And this is the word that's usually, usually used in the New Testament, metaneo, that means to have another mind or to change your mind. You were made sorry about their bad conduct in church, and they sorrowed to repentance to change their minds about their problems they were having in church. You were made sorry after a godly manner. The repentance is a change of mind. The repentance in verse 8 is regret. But in verse 9, this repentance is a change of mind, as it usually is in the New Testament. You were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. The next verse says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Once again, we have to look at these words. The first one is metaneo, that means a change of mind. Godly sorrow works a change of mind. It says to salvation, not to be, and there's the word that means regretted again, not to be regretted. It's a good thing when you have sorrow that leads to, that works a change of mind to salvation. The sorrow of the world worketh death. Now I, I need to just jerk us out of this flow and think about this. In this context where Paul's is writing the second letter he's written to a church where he preached the gospel and many, many were saved. The Lord told him, I have many people in this city. When in their church meeting there was sin going on and he writes them a letter to correct the sin of this and this sin and this sin and this sin and he hears back that they have corrected those things and he's saying, I'm sorry I wrote you a letter that made you sorry, but your sorrow worked a change of mind to salvation not to be repented of. The sorrow of the world works death. I want you to think, does that word salvation there mean I'm going to get you to heaven? Does that mean have eternal life? Or is this talking about salvation from some other kind of judgment? Because here in verse 10 of chapter 7, it doesn't look to me like Paul has been talking about the effect of believing in Christ and his payment for sin on the cross. It looks to me like he's been talking to them about how they've been behaving badly and they fixed it. And these are believers who got to behave better because he corrected them with a letter. This salvation isn't any more about going to heaven or having eternal life than it is in the book of Acts where it says, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's a different use of the word salvation than the idea of coming to eternal life here in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Now if you pull it out of its context, you can use it as a way to help people understand how to be saved. Uh, that somehow sorrow works this change of mind that leads to salvation. But I, don't, I just don't see it in its context. I think he's saying there's judgment coming on a church that has people involved in open sin, and if they don't fix it, they're going to have judgment. That's the same kind of thing that James talked about in chapter 2. He said, church, you're behaving badly, James chapter 2. He says, you got poor people coming into your church, and you make them sit in the corner on the floor. You treat nice rich people nicely, and you treat bad, poor people badly. He said, that ought not to be. If somebody comes into your church and he needs, he says, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm tired, I have no place to stay, I've got no food, I've got no clothing. And you say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. You're not doing anything for him. 
that's bad. And he says there's judgment, James says this, there's judgment without mercy to him that showed no mercy. He's not worrying those people that he's writing to, James. He's not worrying them about not having eternal life. He's warning them about a certain judgment coming for believers who treat other believers badly. Don't you think? And this is the same kind of thing here. The church in Corinth had multiple sins. Paul had corrected in his first letter. The letter that he wrote made them sad, but it also made them right. And he says, godly sorrow that you had experienced works this change of mind to salvation that you need not regret. The sorrow of the world works death. The sorrow of the world works death. If they had not responded well, the result might have been one or even many deaths. Why was he saying that? The sorrow of the world worketh death. If you hadn't responded correctly to my letter, we're going to drift back to 1 Corinthians now. In chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, he said, Don't you know, know you not, that you are the temple of God? You, Corinthians, in all your mess. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. In all of your partisanship, in all of your allowing of immorality, in all of your drunkenness before the Lord's table, in all of that, you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Look out if any man defiles the temple of God. Raise your hand if you're the temple of God. Yeah, that's us. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Well, I'm certainly not talking about sending him to hell, but there's a threat there. There's a warning there. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Can you imagine the Corinthian church receiving this? And they did. They did. Here's James. Here's James' thoughts on the same kind of thing. You, he's writing to believers. He's writing to church people. You adulterers and adulteresses. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? That means God is your enemy. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you want God as your enemy? That would take a good sermon to develop that one. I got enough problems with the enemies I get for myself. I don't need God as my enemy. And Jesus, the Lord, told a story, a parable, if you will, in Luke chapter 19. It's set up this way. It says, as they heard these things, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. As they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. We're on the other side. Yay, we get to win. <laughs> he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This is Page 1102 and 1103 in the Schofield Bible, Luke 19. And the, there's a point in the parable we're not going to dwell on here about dividing up the ten chunks of money. But verse 14 says, but his citizens, who's this? A nobleman that went to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He's going to be the king of this country He's a nobleman in it. He's going to the greater king to receive the kingdom for himself. And verse 14 says, his citizens hated him. And they sent a messenger after him saying, don't bother coming back. <laughs> they sent a message to that higher authority saying, we will not have this man to reign over us like they got to say. 
And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he's now the king, and he goes over the thing with the, the money part, but, and, and we get to the end of him dividing up the money and dealing with those people. He says to the rest, after he divides up the money, he says, but those, verse 27, but those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Oh, oh, do you suppose that's a warning? The Lord Jesus is the king. The disciples thought it's time for the kingdom, yea, we win. But he's going away, going back to the Father's right hand in heaven until the Father makes his enemies his footstool, and then he's coming back. And he's the nobleman that's going to be the king in this parable. And he says, those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay before me. There's a threat there of judgment. It's not about heaven or hell, but there's a threat of judgment there for people rejecting the truth of who the Lord is. In chapter 7 again, going back there to where we began in verse 11, behold, look, that's what behold means, it's a big word for a little word, look, behold this self same thing, you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He said, you got my letter, what did you do with it? You sorrowed, but then you got careful, and you cleared yourself, and even to the point of indignation and fear and vehement desire and zeal, that boiling hot fiery word, and revenge in all things, you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. Now, I stopped my notes there because that was the end of the piece of paper. <laughs> but it's not the end of the hour, so we'll go on a little further now. In verse 12, he says this. He says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong. He says, I wasn't about the father with the, the son that messed up, or I wasn't about the partisan. I wasn't on either side, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. I wanted you to know everything that you're doing matters to me. I hold you close. I didn't do it to be on one side or another of the controversy but so that you would know in the sight of God our care for you might appear to you. Therefore, we were exceedingly, we were comforted in your comfort and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. When Titus came to you, you cheered him up. You said, Titus, this is an awful letter you've, we've gotten from Paul, but we're doing what it's supposed to do. We're doing what it says. We, 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 we're sorry for what we did wrong, and we're going to fix it. 
And it says, his spirit was refreshed by you all. Verse 14, if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. Oh, no. As we spake all things to you in the truth, so our boasting which I made before in Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection, Titus's inward affection, is more abundant toward you while he remembered the obedience of you all, how that with fear and trembling you received him. When Titus was telling me, Paul says, how you received him, he remembered, oh, they, they treated you right because they responded well to my letter. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence of you, in you, in all things. That's a good, good chapter. Freedom to speak to them as their friend and so full of comfort, like chapter 1 and like the other chapters. But where did the comfort to Paul come this time? By the word of Titus. By the word of Titus. We have a little time. We're going to look ahead at the next chapter where he begins to talk to them about some things they can do for God's people. Moreover, brethren, usually if you see moreover, that means you're supposed to turn the page, right? Moreover, yeah. Moreover, we're still on page 1235 in the Schofield Bible. Moreover, brethren, there's never any doubt he's writing to believers here. We do you to wit. We want to make sure you understand. We want to tell you about something so you'll understand it. We do you to wit. We want to help you understand the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And he's taken them back to their mental map. He says, you're down here in Corinth. I'm up here in Macedonia. I want to tell you what God has done for these churches in Macedonia. He says, how that in a great trial of affliction, troubles, he said that earlier in chapter 7. He says, we've got all kinds of troubles going on, but we're comforted by you guys in Corinth. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. I don't know how to tell you this, but that word abounded is that word superabounded again. There's abundance, there's abounding joy, but there's deep poverty. And it's in a great trial of affliction. Well, the joy won out. <laughs> abounded to the riches of their liberality. Now, they didn't become liberals and you'd have to vote against them. No, they, they became givers. They became givers in spite of their deep poverty. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. They said, take it. Take, take it. Take my son. Take my wife. No, no, they didn't give away their family members. But they gave and gave and gave beyond their power, praying us, begging us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. I think this has reference to a dearth, a time when there was not enough food in the Jerusalem church. Paul more than once took gifts from his churches back to the Jerusalem church to care for the saints back there. And the Macedonian believers in their deep poverty said, you take it, just take it all, we can get more. 
take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And then he says in verse 5, this they did not as we hoped. They did it a different way. First they gave their own selves to the Lord. There's a plan. Sometimes we say the words, everything I have, everything I am, it's in a song. We give it to God. But these people did. And then they gave whatever they could and beyond it said their ability to Paul by the will of God. They first gave themselves to the Lord Jesus and then they gave to the needs of the ministry that Paul was going to carry back to Jerusalem. Insomuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun so he would also finish in you the same grace also. What is that? Paul saying, you know Titus. He didn't take anything from you when he was there. He just gave and gave and gave. He says, I'm sending him back to you. And you should do and do it by the hand of Titus the same thing that these Macedonians did. They took, it says, beyond their power. They were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty we'd receive the gift they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God in so much that we want Titus to come back to you and help you with the same idea. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. What's he saying? Give. Give. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. He says, I'm not telling you you have to. I'm saying, oh, what an opportunity. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Herein I give my advice. This is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. A year ago, he said, you were ready to give to this dearth in Jerusalem. Now, perform the doing of it. There was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance out of that which you have. Give. If there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to a, that a man has, not according to what he has not. What's that? Well, I thought I'd give him $500, but I only got $200. It's accepted according to what you have, not according to what he has not. I mean not that other men be eased and you burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be an equality. As it is written, he that hath gathered much hath nothing over, he that hath gathered little had no Lack. Well, we do need to stop here shortly, and so we'll, we'll just look at one more verse. My favorite verse is here in 2 Corinthians. Just to remind us again that Paul had gone over this that is the truth of the gospel with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? Let me explain the ministry of reconciliation. God, if I could let this hand represent God, was in Christ, the one who came and died on the cross. There was a problem between God and the world. 
the problem called sin, separating mankind from God. But God was in Christ, and he took the sin on himself, taking away what stood between him and God, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but there's something that we have to do. There's a word, an explanation that has to come out of the mouth of the preacher of the gospel, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And here it is one more time about what Jesus did on the cross. He has made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that in him comes this way, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe in Jesus, that is to accept the word of the reconciliation that God has worked. Father in heaven, help each one hearing and make clear in their own mind that they have believed in Jesus and received the gift of the righteousness of God put to their account through the death of Jesus, his son. Father, encourage each one of us to see that Paul, as he wrote to this Corinthian church the second time, was comforted beyond measure and then used the example of the Macedonians to challenge the Corinthian church to give themselves to the Lord and then to give to the needs of the church beyond their ability but of a great, great willingness. Help us to learn by this in Jesus' name.